Let's open our Bibles to um, Luke 19, verses 37 and 44, where Paul was reading for us earlier. Palm Sunday, 2019. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had only known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another because... You did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus is um, speaking this, he has little less than a week uh, before he's going to be crucified. It was in this final week that Jesus spoke of what to look for in the last days. It was from this Sunday through till Friday that he foretold the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, He foretold the abomination of desolation um, that'll take place in the book of Revelation, spoken of by um, Daniel in the Old Testament, Paul, as he's uh, writing Thessalonians. And he also foretold the tribulation, all within this last week of time. One of the reasons we read here in verse 37, the multitudes, the whole multitudes, um, were so large was that the word had gotten out that Jesus had just risen Lazarus from the grave. And I actually wanna take you there and show you why the crowds were so big on this particular day. So let's turn over to John, Gospel of John, Chapter 11, up to this point, um, of course, Mary and Martha had called for Jesus to come, and we read in verse 35 that the other place where Jesus wept is in uh, John 11, verse 35, and the reason for his weeping, I'm not sure, Um. Some Jews said, see how much he loved him. Um, But the Lord, whatever the reason was, simply said, as he was now dead for four days, show me where you've laid him. Where's the tomb? So they took him to the tomb. And let's pick it up in verse 41 and read. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, 
that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now remember, he's been in the tomb. People have been there comforting Mary and Martha during this period of time. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Now, because of this miracle, we read in verse 45 that many of the Jews who had come to see Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed on them, but still others went to the Pharisees and told them these things that Jesus did and the mighty works. So one of the reasons for the large crowds is explained further in chapter 12. If you look at verse nine, this is sometime, six, it says in verse one, six days before the Passover. So we're talking about the same period of, of time of uh, uh, Palm Sunday. That um, Mary and Martha were having a meal and Lazarus was there, alive and well. And we read in verse nine, it says a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not um, for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest took counsel that he might also put Lazarus to death. Not only would he have to kill Jesus, but now here we've got a living witness walking around. We're going to have to get rid of him too. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on him. So there's a, um, a movement moving away from the Jewish leadership. And because of this miracle of Lazarus coming back from life, many of the Jews were, were becoming believers in Jesus. Now, notice the very next verse. It says, the next day. A great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took palm branches and trees and went to meet him and cried out and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, this is our text in Luke, but the reason I wanted to take you here where we read in John 12 uh, uh, through 15, we have um, our text back in Luke's gospel, so let's go back to Luke, and let me point out when it says the the great multitude, clearly this is connected with uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, many Jews getting saved, so there was always crowds, but this was a major crowd, because now the word was out, Jesus is on his way, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And um, um, this morning, what I'd like to do, uh, we'll be looking at four prophecies that are fulfilled just in verses 28 to 44. We'll be looking at four different prophecies. Um, One of them, to me, is the most incredible prophecy in the entire scriptures. 
um, completely mind-boggling. And we'll, we'll be getting to that one. But the first one that I want you to look at is in Luke 19, um, verses 28 through 36. And before I read it, I just, I, I, it had to be great just hanging out with Jesus. Because he would say something, and um, like in this case, he's going to tell the guys to go into the city and get this donkey, and uh, you're going to be challenged about it. You say this, and he's not going to say nothing back. And so we read here at verse 28, when he had said this, he went ahead going to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came to Bethage in Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. He says, I want you to go into the opposite village, where when you enter, you're gonna find this colt tied up. Nobody's ever sat on it. I want you to loose him and bring him to me. And by the way, if anybody asks you, what are you doing? Uh, just say to him, well, the Lord has need of him. Uh, so those who were sent departed, found it just as the Lord had said. And as they were loosening the colt, sure enough, the owner said, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, the Lord has need of them. And we don't have a response. I was always curious <laughs> what the Lord communicated to this guy. And they simply brought him to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt and then Jesus sat on them. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Now, when we go to Jerusalem, we usually start on, uh, on the Mediterranean and we go to um, uh, Caesarea, uh, we, we make our way up to um, Mount Carmel, go down to Megiddo, uh, make our way over to um, um, Nazareth, and eventually down to the Dead Sea, Masada, Qumran. And, um, uh, but we, when we get to Jerusalem, we we'll go to our hotel, but the very first thing we do the next morning is we go to the Mount of Olives. And we have a group picture over with the city of Jerusalem in the background. It's a great shot. But it's at that very place that this is happening. And what we'll do instead of getting back on a bus and going down to the Garden of Gethsemane, we walk down. So talk about the Bible coming to life. No, it's not the same road that was on because they didn't have asphalt in Jesus' day that I'm aware of. But um, the fact that we were taking this walk really brings the scriptures to life because this is exactly what is, what is taking place. What I want to point out is it's our first prophecy. I want you to go to the book of Zechariah, which is the second to the last book in the Old Testament, right next to Malachi. First Zechariah, then Malachi. In Malachi, I mean in Zechariah chapter nine, let's look at verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just, having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. I got a little bit more time in a second service, but again, as we go through the scriptures, I like to point out that you could have a gap of time of 2,000 years from one verse to the next verse. 
Verse nine deals with a prophecy that was fulfilled on what we call Palm Sunday. Verse 10, there's a gap between verse nine and 10 of 2,000 years. This verse says that his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is talking about the millennium. So in one verse you have his first coming and then in uh, verse 10, a gap and another prophecy that is still yet uh, in, in our future. All right, let's go back to Luke 19. That's our first prophecy. Zechariah wrote that 500 years before this event took place, roughly twice the age of our own country. So this was waiting to unfold for 500 years, but it's being fulfilled on this very day. Now, when we look at the second prophecy, uh, 37 through 40, we read, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the whole Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they'd seen, in particular, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And now they're quoting Psalm 118 saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is prophecy number two, and I want you to see that one also. So let's go back to Psalm 118. And while you're turning, the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 120, uh, in my Bible, it is titled, A Psalm of Distress. There are psalms of distress, there's songs of joy, there's psalms of praise, there's psalms of lament and sorrow, and then there's messianic psalms. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's exactly what Jesus said on the cross. We'll be talking more about that this Friday. But my point is, Psalm 118 is also a messianic psalm. And the fact that the people were singing this particular psalm was stating that they believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Let's read verse 22 through 25. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, a special day. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Go back to um, Luke 19, verses 37 to 38. We have this huge multitude. Um, Other gospels tell us about the palms being put down on the ground before him. That's what we call it, Palm Sunday. Or their garments. And, um, And then they're quoting this particular one. And by doing so, um, they're declaring that he is the Messiah because this is a messianic psalm that only the Jewish Messiah 
could fulfill. And in verse 39, the scribes and the Pharisees know it all too well. And they tell, let's read it, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The reason they said that is to say, don't you understand that they think you're the Messiah by quoting Psalm 118? Tell them to shut up. Because they certainly weren't accepting that. So he points to them and says, you better tell them uh, to button it up because they actually believe that you're the Messiah. And they did believe that. Now, every time we go through this or other studies, we're always seeing something we haven't seen before. Uh, Something caught me this year um, that I did a little bit more research in, and that is um, usually when Jesus would do a miracle, he refused to be worshiped, and he would usually do a miracle, and then he would say, don't tell anyone. And I could give you lots of examples. I've only chosen four or five. But um, when the Lord raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, she was dead. They knew it. And um, the Lord sends everybody out of the house, except mom and dad. And he said, little girl, rise. And that little girl sat up. And in Luke 8, verse 37, 56, that her parents were astonished, but he charged them, tell no one what has happened. He says, don't let anybody know. And um, this could be Simon the leper. This is, if you're taking notes, um, uh, Matthew chapter eight, verse four. I, I believe it could be Simon the leper. But here he heals a man of leprosy. And he said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, and I want you to show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, leprosy is not curable. And here, in the law, there's still provision made for the day a leper gets healed on what they're supposed to do. And that's why Jesus said, um, don't tell anybody. What I want you to do is go show yourself to the priest uh, just as Moses commanded. So now we're talking about the law. A couple weeks ago, remember, we were talking about uh, Nahum from Syria uh, who came and was um, uh, healed in the Jordan River after being dipped seven times. So he was healed of leprosy. And this man here had to go to the priest and he says, well, I was a leper, but I'm not anymore. See, clean all over. What the priest would do is quarantine him for seven days. He'd lock him up. And he says, we'll see. So after seven days, he would be examined again. If the leprosy was still gone, he would be pronounced clean by the priest and he would be allowed back into society. Apart from that, you had to walk around letting people know, unclean, unclean, don't come near me, leprosy is highly contagious. In Matthew chapter 16, the Lord 
talking to, um, who do people say that I am? Well, some think you're Elijah. Um, some say this prophet. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He says, well said, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And then he says this. He said, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So again, he's saying no, don't say anything about it. Um, and there's several other, I'll just quote one more, Mark 9, 9. Peter, James, and John are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's Moses, there's Elijah, and Jesus becomes glorified. And... Um, The heavens open up. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter was all jazzed up of the fact that there's Moses, (laughs) there's Elijah. Wow, let's build three tents and make tabernacles. And the Lord interrupted and said, no, 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 no. It's not about Moses, it's not about Elijah. This is my son. But then coming down the mountain, this is what the Lord told Peter, James, and John. As they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. What's your point, Dwight? Whenever the Lord did a miracle, he would always say things like that. Don't make a big deal. Don't tell anybody about it. And yet, let's go back to, to Luke chapter 19, verse 40. The disciples, the Pharisees say, rebuke them. They think you're the Messiah. They're worshiping you right now by quoting Psalm 118. What ordinarily the Lord would do would not allow it. But it's just the opposite in this case. Look at verse 40. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Why? You see, this is a prophecy. Uh, Psalm 118, and it was being fulfilled. This is the day. This is a very special day. This is the day that he is going to allow the masses to publicly acknowledge that he is the Jewish Messiah. The Pharisees were offended by it. Jesus usually would ignore the attention. Not this time. He says, no, bring it on. Because if they don't, then the stones are going to start praising me. Um, And I always like to say, don't you wish everybody would shut up just for a second? (laughs) I've never heard a stone sing before. But somebody was going to praise him that day. Why? Do you know that Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word? And if it says in Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 that someday, on a certain particular day, um, the Messiah is going to come riding a a donkey. And they're gonna be quoting Psalm 118. And this is that day. And so the Lord said, nothing can stop this from happening. Why? Because God's word has to come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not this book. Good place for an amen. It gives me hope. Um, People don't have hope today. I told the first service, I'm becoming increasingly more aware of uh, 
more people on the streets. Um, I could usually pick out a homeless person. But also I could see a person who is just, by his body language, um, has no hope. I could tell by the way he walks, his head is hung. I could tell he's probably got food and clothing, but he's going through something. And what his body language tells me is, I have no hope. I have no reason to be. And it's written all over them. So the hope that we have is God speaks to us in advance. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? The way of the, the gift of faith, I could speak to mountains and move them, but I have not love, I'm nothing. In the very last verse it says, there's three things that remain. Faith, what's the middle one? We have hope, gang, and love, and the greatest of these is love. At the end of the day, we as believers, because we know this book, no matter what you're going through, there's still hope. Another good place for it, amen. Okay, so um, this had to happen, and what's unique about it to me is this was the one time that Lord said, yeah, bring it on. This is the time, this is, this is the day. Now talk about extremes, because when we read the next verse, verse 41, as he drew near the city, he began to weep over it. So he's going from this emotional high of being worshiped and glorified, he's receiving it, to the point that he is now in tears. Why was he in tears? He knows what's gonna happen in less than a week. He knows that some people in this crowd that were acknowledging him as Messiah would be the same crowd that would be calling for his crucifixion in less than a week. The fickleness of man. What should we do with him? Crucify him. Well, give us Barabbas instead. And he realizes that he's not gonna be accepted as their Messiah. They had been looking for a warrior, one who could lead them to overthrow the Roman authority that they were under. They weren't looking for a humble, lowly man coming down on a donkey. And um, so he realizes what's going to happen. And now we read in verse 42, the reason Jesus wept. Say, and I'm gonna to try to put some emotion into this, the reading of this because the Lord was weeping when he said it. Oh, if you had only known, even in this, your day, I would emphasize and underline that day. This is your day. The things that could have made for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. This here, um, in verse uh, 42, um, Jesus' weeping um, was actually foretold by Daniel. And I'm gonna have you turn back to the book of Daniel, chapter nine. So if you go there quickly, Daniel chapter nine, while you're turning, I'm gonna have you look at 
the timing of this. That's in verses one and two. So Daniel 9 is taking place during the reign of the Medes and the Persians. Daniel 2 and 7, of course, tells us world history. Um, Who would be the rule world-dominating empires? Babylon, the Medo-Persians, that's the one we're looking at right now. So we're past the Babylonian reign. We're into, it says... um, the first year of, the, of his reign of Darius. So there dates it for us. So we're in the Medo-Persian Empire that would be eventually overplaced by Alexander the Great, and he would eventually be overtaken by the Romans, which are the ones that are alive during Luke chapter 19. But we read in verse 2, um, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord, given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel was a student of prophecy. He was 17 or so when Nebuchadnezzar came and took him and his friends back to Babylon. This is now 70 years has passed. So he's somewhere in his 80s. And he realizes, look, Jeremiah said 70 years. I've been here for 70 years. Time's up. Lord, when do we get to go home? Basically, uh, that's what he's saying. The reason they were sent into captivity was because of them turning their hearts away from the Lord. And um, as a result, Jeremiah had one message. He had one sermon. You guys have blown it. You've gotten away from the Lord. And as a result, for the next 70 years, you're going into captivity, and there's nothing you can do about it. Let me do a little rabbit trail here. Yesterday in men's prayer, we're in Deuteronomy. 27, 28, 29, 30. That's what we went through. And in it is the blessings and the cursings that are going to be placed upon the nation of Israel. It goes something like this. The Levites were on one mountain, the rest of the children of Israel over here. And he would pronounce curses upon them. And he would say, curse it if you would follow any other God. And then the people on the other side would have to say, amen. And then they would say, curse it if you do this sin or this sin. Curse it. People have to say, amen. And then it would go to the blessings. But if you do this and this and follow my ways and walk my ways, I will bless you. And all people will say, amen. Try it, amen. <laughs> okay, so this would be acted out, but what um, I wanted to point out to the guys yesterday, in 28 and 29, one of the curses, if they got away from the Lord, he would send them to a nation that had a different language, And um, if they repented, he would bring them back. And I said, notice that it's singular, nation. And in the very same chapter, the very same chapter, he said, and if you do this, then I'm gonna send you into the nations as far as Egypt, where you came out of. And um, my point was, there's two times that Israel was out of the land. The first one, Daniel's experiencing, that's what Daniel 9 is all about. 
They're out of Israel to a nation, one nation. We're going to get to what we just read in our text. Jesus prophesies them going into the nations, but this time, a second time. And it's plural. And it's why you've heard the term, the wandering Jew, because they've wandered all over the world. So in the same passage in Deuteronomy, he says, I'm going to take you to one nation, Babylon, but then there's going to be another time where I'm going to disperse you into all the world. All right. So what Daniel does from verses 3 to 19 is he begins to repent and pray for, Lord, can we go home now? Verse five, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even departing from your precepts and your judgments. He's saying what Jeremiah said is true. And it's time for us to repent. So all the way up to verse 19 is a prayer of repentance. It builds as it goes. Until you get to verse 19, I can feel the intensity. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Don't delay for your own sake. My God and your city and your people are called by your name. And in the middle of that, Gabriel shows up. Right in the middle of this prayer. Now we have verses 20 through 23. And while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, do angels fly? Well, evidently. Reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me. And he talked with me. And he said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. What does Daniel want to know? Lord, it's been 70 years. Do we get to go home now? That's all he's interested in. When? And then he's, Gabriel says, you know what? The time that you began to pray, um, the command went out, and I was, I've come forth to tell you, you are greatly beloved. It doesn't say I've come to tell you when you're going back. And I want to stop and just make, make a point here of, of something of significance and importance. That what the angel is doing here, he says, before I give you the revelation, I'm going to give you affirmation. It's possible to have a lot of head knowledge and not be a very loving Christian. Somebody want to give you an amen or not? Doesn't the Bible say knowledge puffs up? And so before the angel gives the revelation, he says, Daniel, I want you to know something. Do you know that God loves you? So I want to tell you something this morning, my friends. Before I give you the revelation, the rest of the study, what Daniel wants to know, it's more important that you know that God loves you than that you go away with this incredible prophecy, which to me is so mind-boggling. But what's more important, when all is said, again, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, seek after these gifts, is the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he says, but yet I will show you a more, better, perfect way. And of course, he's talking about love. Though I have the tongues of men, of angels, but if I don't have love, you don't have nothing. So, you are greatly beloved. 
If you don't get anything out of the study this morning, leave here knowing God loves you. Therefore, because God loves you, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now verse 24, we find 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city. Now this is important. Um, These six things that we're gonna read about pertain only to the Jewish people and only to the city of Jerusalem. What are they? What's he gonna do during um, the 70 weeks? And I'm gonna come back and explain why that's a 490 year period of time. Um, They're gonna finish the transgression, gonna make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. As far as I can tell, that hasn't happened yet. (laughs) To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So 70 weeks is 490 years. Well, Dwight, how do you know it's 490 years? Turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. 70 times seven. Uh, For those of you that were here on Wednesday, we were talking about forgiveness And it was Peter who came up to the Lord and said, Lord, you know, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And the Lord says, no, 70 times seven. All right, do the math. 70 times seven is 490. And Peter, being Peter, was probably going, all right, I'm counting 490, but 491. (laughs) 490 is one of those numbers that's reoccurring in the scripture. It's in Daniel 9, verse 24. The reason we know that a week is seven years is because of the story of Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah. If you look at verse 25 of Genesis 29, we find that Uncle Laban played the old switcheroo on Jacob. He's in love with Rachel. And they had the wedding at night, and um, evidently she wore some sort of veil because when he woke up in the morning, it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. (laughs) So verse 25, it came to pass in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, well, it must be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. In this verse here, we read that a week is a seven-year period of time. And so in verse 30, we read, then Jacob also went to Rachel And he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. But it says, fulfill her week. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter nine. And in Daniel chapter nine, it says 70 weeks, or 70 times seven. 490 years are what we have. And we're told, now if you look at verse 25, 
Gabriel says to Daniel, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there will be 69 or seven weeks and 62, that's 69 weeks. The streets will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Here, what we're learning is when the Messiah is actually going to come. When is he gonna come? Well, after 483 of these years, or 69 weeks, I'm gonna introduce you to Sir Robert Anderson in just a moment here. Um, He based this on a 360-day calendar, which they used in that time frame. We use a 365. But when you do the math with that, you come up even to a day, 173,880 days, but we gotta have a starting point. The starting point is when the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, when that command is given, he's saying it'll be 173,880 days and then the Messiah. Wow. Somebody say wow. Wow. You can say amen and wow in church. To me, that's a wow. Especially if it's true. There will be seven weeks and 69 weeks. The streets will be built again. All right. Um, The question at this point, we need to find a starting date, so I'm going to have you turn to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to give you a moment because I want you to turn there with me. It's right after Ezra, and it's right before Esther. So I'm, uh, while you're turning, I'm, I'll be setting this stage here. Again, um, the Persians, uh, Medo-Persians are in rule. Uh, the king's name is Artaxerxes. They're in the capital city of Sushan. And Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. He was a wine tester. And his job was to sample the wine in case somebody had poisoned it. If it was poisoned, Nehemiah would die and the king would live. (laughs) What a great job, huh? But what happened in chapter one is he had just gotten word that somebody had come back from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, so, tell me. He says, it's depressing. Nobody's doing anything. Um, nobody's rebuilding the walls, nobody's working, and it's, everybody's depressed. So that's what was just laid on Nehemiah, and now we have chapter two. In chapter two it says, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of king of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. That was dangerous. You couldn't be sad and bring the king down. Your job is to make the king happy, not sad. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? In other words, the king picked up on Nehemiah's body language. Something's obviously wrong. You're not sick. So what is it? And it tells us that Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid. You're in dangerous trouble, if you brought down the king. Your job is to make him happy, not sad. 
to the point here where evidently he's afraid. And said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie waste, the gates are burned with fire. And the king picks up on why he's sad and he shows compassion to Nehemiah. And the king said to me, what do you want? What are you you getting at, Nehemiah? And I like this. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, you ever have one of those prayers? (laughs) You find yourself in a tough spot and you're praying to the Lord and saying to a person all at the same time. He says, well, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to, to me, and the, the queen also sitting beside him, well, how long are you going to be gone for? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. In other words, the king's giving him the green light. I'm going to let you go. But I want you to tell me when you're coming back. So Nehemiah says, I'll be back in such and such a time. But Nehemiah goes on further and he says to the king, if it please the king, will you give me letters given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah? I also want a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. There he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city walls, for the house that I will occupy, And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God that was upon me. Back to Daniel chapter nine. The question now is, read verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command. It begs the question, when was the command given? The answer, Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. From that point, you have a starting point. Now the question, if that's the starting point, was anything of significance taking place 173, 880 days later after this decree was given by King Artaxerxes? The answer to that is absolutely yes, and we call it Palm Sunday. Two the day that was given and if that doesn't blow your mind I don't know what will in life because it's mind boggling to when they were saying this is the day that the Lord has made they weren't referring to the Hallmark greeting cards that you can buy that says this is a day that the Lord has made which could be any day this is the day that the Lord has made isn't it but that's not what Luke is referring to That's not what Psalm 118 is about, and that's not what this is referring to in uh, Daniel 9, verse 25. No, a special day, to the day. There would be a man riding a donkey on the Mount of Olives. They would be quoting Psalm 118. And the Lord said, oh, if you had only known in this your day, a very special day, appointed in history, where we go on to read that when his command is given, until the Messiah shows up. I honestly don't know 
with my Jewish friends, um, I asked them if they would simply read Daniel chapter 9 with an open mind. Just be open and just read, read it for yourself. And you tell me and explain away if you knew of anybody else riding a donkey in Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD, quoting Psalm 118, other than Jesus Christ. Because Daniel 9, verse 25 says, that will be your Messiah. Messiah, the Prince. Now, let me introduce you to, um, some of you have heard of him before. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. Uh, some of you might be thinking, Dwight, where did you come up with all this stuff? And uh, I can tell you it wasn't me. Uh, it was Sir Robert Anderson. I'm sure maybe others stumbled across it, but he was the first one who put it in writing. The significance of Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince, 1895, should not be underestimated by modern students of Bible prophecy in that Anderson not only ably defended Daniel's authorship of the book of Daniel from the scholarship of unbelief of the higher criticism of his day because he clearly established the historical accuracy of the fulfillment of the time-orientated prophecy of the Lord's first coming. And he quotes Daniel 9, verse 25. Sir Robert Anderson goes to write, the Julian date of that 10th of Nisan, Sunday, April 6, 32 AD. What then was the length of the period interval between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the public advent of Messiah the Prince that was given between March 14, 445 BC and April 6, 32 AD? The interval contained exactly to the very day, 173,880 days or seven times 69 prophetic years of 360 days, the first 69 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy. What I didn't mention in the first service that I'll mention here is that means there's still one week left of seven years that pertain, remember it says this, He's gonna work with Israel and Jerusalem for 490. Well, 483 are fulfilled on April 6, 32 AD. In other words, the clock stopped and it hasn't started ticking yet. It says in Romans that blindness has happened to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then it says, um, and so, all of Israel will be saved. So it implies that there's a set number that only God knows, and when that last person is saved, when the fullness of the Gentiles becomes a Christian, that'll be it. The rapture will take place, and tick, 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 tick. Do you know that the book of Revelation is a seven-year period of time? And it goes out of its way to divide itself up all over the place, making that point, dividing it in half. Remember I told you that the Lord talked about the abomination of desolation? Well, that clearly tells us that it happens right in the very middle of the week. And I'll show you that in Daniel before we're we're through this morning. 
So, um, in introducing you to um, uh, him, Sir Robert Anderson was born in a Christian home, um, Irish Presbyterian in Dublin, 1841. He served with Scotland Yard until he retired in 1896. He was knighted by Queen Victoria. His many friends included Hadley J. Mole, Henry uh, Drummond, uh, C.I. Schofield. And that brings us to um, our fourth prophecy, but we've got to go back to Luke 19 for that one. Luke 19. Let's read verse 42 again and put it all together. Jesus said, if you'd only known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He has tears in his eyes when he is saying that. Why? Because they should have been students of Daniel. They should have been looking for him because it was clearly laid out. But it brings us now to Jesus This is the fourth prophecy and final one we'll look at this morning. Now Jesus prophesies, and he says in verse 43, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And then I have the word because, not only underlined, but I have it in a box. In other words, the reason that they're now going to be dispersed into not nation singular, but nations of the world, is he says, because. You're going to be dispersed into the nation of the world because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Now, what's the implication here? You were supposed to know the time of your visitation. Your religious leaders, instead of being offended, should have been studying Jeremiah, should have been studying the book of Daniel, should have understood that there was an appointed time and day when their Messiah would come to them riding lowly on a a colt of a donkey. People would be quoting Psalm 118, and you're going to miss it. So... Now we read the consequences because you did not know the time of of your visitation. Jesus prophesies about an event that is going to take place in 70 AD. And we need at this time to go back again to Daniel because Daniel says the same thing that Jesus says right here. Let's go back to Daniel 9. We made it up to verse 25. Now let's read verse 26. Verse 26 said, now after the 62 weeks and seven, when the Messiah, when he, now that he has come, he's gonna be cut off. Now the Hebrew word there is the same word they use for being executed. What? Their Messiah is gonna be executed? What for? Well, it goes on to say, but not for himself. Gang, that's the whole gospel right there. Jesus came. He was executed. Who was he executed for? He was executed for me. He was executed for you. 
and the people of the prince who is to come, that would be the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who destroyed um, Jerusalem in 70 AD? The Romans. Who's prophesying about it here? Um, 500 years before it happens? Daniel. The city will be destroyed and the end will be with a flood until the end of war, war desolations are determined. Then we have a gap. Uh, 69 weeks are fulfilled. The clock has stopped. He's not dealing with the Jews right now. Oh, there's Messianic Jews and Jews that are born again believers, but not as a whole. As a whole, they're secular. And in verse 27, it says, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. How many years did God promise to work with Israel? 490. How many are fulfilled up till this time? 483. He owes them seven. And in the middle of the week, we have an event that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. Quoted by Daniel, the prophet. So Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, and we have the 490, 483 of those years fulfilled. How many of you have heard of Flavius Josephus? He's probably written more about the history of the war that took place in 70 AD. Um, he was captured on Mount Arbel and um, given the alternative of dying or becoming a scribe for the Romans, writing down in detail everything that happened during this war. So I'm going to quote a, a paragraph that I got off the web yesterday from Flavius Josephus. The siege of Jerusalem in year 70 AD was the decisive event of the first Jewish-Roman war in which the Roman army captured the city of Jerusalem, destroyed both the city and its temple. The Roman army led by the future emperor Titus with Tiberius Julius Alexander as the second in command besieged and conquered the city of Jerusalem, which had been controlled by the uh, Judean rebel faction since 66 AD, following the revolt of 66 when the Judean provincial government was formed in Jerusalem. Um, now this morning before we came, I was telling my wife, I'm, I said, I'm gonna say something this morning that you've never heard before. And I said, it has to do with the fall of Jerusalem. And she says, well, well, tell me. And I said, well, you'll find out soon enough when you're sitting in a Bible study. She says, don't do that. And I said, but I like doing that. So she already knows because she heard this the first service. Okay, here's what's interesting about it. She wanted to know when and what was the date that the temple fell. And when, what, when did this invasion take place? I'm about to tell you. The battle, the siege of the city by the Romans began on April 14th, 70 AD. Oh, what's the date today, by the way? Oh, yes, April 14th. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. 
Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, but I sure found it interesting. But that's when they began the siege. It goes on to say, uh, three days before the beginning of Passover, the siege lasted for over four months with the battle of the city lasting for close to another week after that. The siege ended on August 30th, 70 AD with the burning and destruction of the second temple. And the Romans entered and sacked the lower city. The destruction of both the first and second temple is still mourned annually during the Jewish feast of uh, Tishri. Um, The ninth of Av was when Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The ninth of Av was when the temple, what we call Herod's temple, was destroyed. That is not a coincidence that they both happened on exactly the same day. So my, my wife's question was, when was the temple destroyed thinking it all happened at one time? No, there was four, uh, it was the 14th of April through September 8th. That's four months, three weeks, and four days that the battle took place. Josephus tells us that over 1,100,000 people lost their lives in the taking of the city, and then what we call the dysphoria, them being dispersed now into all the nations. As we begin to wrap this up this morning, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about Sir Robert Anderson because he wasn't always a believer. Sir Robert Anderson did not come to faith until he was 19 years old. During the Irish Revival, 1859 to 1860, one Sunday after listening to Dr. John Hall, a preacher, he remained behind to argue with the minister. Uh, Dr. Hall solemnly appealed to Robert. He looked at him and he said, I tell you as a minister of Christ and in his name that there is life for you here and now if you'll accept him. Will you accept him or will you reject him? To this, Robert Anderson paused, caught him off guard. This guy was straight to the point. Either for me or against me, are you gonna reject or are you gonna accept? And it caused him pause to think about it. And when he came out the other side, he said, in God's name, I will accept Christ. And he said, I turned homeward with the peace of God filling my heart. He went there, he was looking for a fight. He was looking for a debate. Instead, he accepts Jesus and he goes home with this perfect peace. Not having any idea that God is gonna use him in future years to crack if you want to use the terminology, the code of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And it was one of the first ones to put it in print with his book, The Coming Prince. My friends, do you know him? Have you surrendered to him? Will you be ready for him when he comes the second time, just as there were signs of his first coming? The Lord, again, lays it all out. No surprises, you can know. So today, 
um, we see signs of his second coming. And every year it gets more dramatic and more dramatic and more dramatic. More lawlessness, more falling away. Are not these the things that the Lord said would happen? Love of many would wax cold. Churches and people would gravitate towards um, cultural trends instead of staying true to the word. Looking for people to tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. That's what the Bible says is gonna happen. So I just have to be honest, I look at our world and I have to admit, that's what I see. We read in Hebrews that um, it says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together like we're doing here. Um, Not to forsake the fellowship of the saints. That's a great part of Sunday morning, amen? You can talk to people afterwards before. And he says, but I want you to do it all the more. Do it more and more and more and more as you see the day approaching. Question is simple. You either see the day approaching or you don't. And if you see the day approaching, our admonishment is to do it more and more. Get more and more Bible study. Less and less world. Good place for an amen. But it's going to take discipline. Let's face it. Most of the world is preoccupied with this thing right here. I can go anywhere. I can go to a restaurant and a husband and wife or a guy's out on his date. They're not even looking at each other. You know what they're doing? They're texting each other. (laughs) Or somebody else. And there's so many things that demand our time and our attention. But we're admonished in these days to be looking for signs. Did they miss it the first time around? Oh, yeah. Should they have known? Oh, yeah. What did, what did it cause the Lord to do? Broke his heart. Oh, you could have had peace, but you wouldn't do it. I'm glad Sir Robert Anderson thought it through and accepted Jesus because he would later go on to write the book, The Coming Prince. It should be remembered that the so-called triumphal entry ended at the cross. Christ will come the second time in triumph. Hebrews 9, 28 says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear a second time. That's what we're supposed to be doing. There's a sign over here, oh, interesting in the Middle East. So we've got um, Putin, he's there. We have Iran in Turkey, and we got uh, the, the president of Iran, all the countries that are the key players for the Ezekiel 38 war, there, with all kinds of different motives. And uh, some of you are thinking, Dwight, you could ramble on for that for a long time. And you know I would if I could. There's so many things happening that um, we have to be looking for his appearing the second time and not make the mistake that the early um, believers did. The second time the Lord will come to the earth, he will put his foot on the Mount of Olives. Now I have to stop here and interject. That's true. But what happens before that is the rapture of the church. Once the rapture of the church takes place, tick, 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 tick. God owes Israel seven years. That's Revelation 6 through 19, a seven-year period of time. We go through the tri- they go through the tribulation. We watch it from the balcony. But then afterwards, 
when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of just desolation, unsaved Jews that are living in Jerusalem, run. The Bible tells us where they run to. Isaiah chapter six says it's Petra in Jordan. And they will be supernaturally protected, Revelation chapter 12. For how long? Three and a half years. Another way of saying uh, half of seven, 42 months is three and a half years. Times, times, and a half of times is three and a half years. For somehow the Lord wants us to get it in our head that the book of Revelation is about Israel. For a period of time of how much? Seven years. What does he owe him? One week. And that's when it's going to happen. Do you think there's anything in the universe that's going to stop that from happening? Did not Jesus say heaven and earth will pass away? But not my book. It's going to happen. Nothing can change it. Jesus said, oh, they, they're going to worship me today. This is going to happen. I'm not going to say, no, 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 don't do that. Because if they don't, the stones will. Why? Because it was prophesied in Psalm 118 that that was going to happen on that particular day. Now, when Jesus left, Acts chapter 1 tells us, where was he? Oh, he was on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples were there. And he was bodily taken up into heaven. And all of a sudden, a couple angels show up. And he says, hey, you men of Galilee, this Jesus that you see being taken up into heaven, this same Jesus is gonna come right back again to the very, this very spot. If you're taking notes, that's a prophecy. Zechariah 14, verse four says he will place his foot again on the Mount of Olives. And when he does, there's gonna be a great earthquake that's going to take place. And um, the Lord will then enter Jerusalem. This will be his true triumphal entry. We'll be at his second coming. His first entry into Jerusalem took him to the cross to die for our sins. But his death and resurrection, by his death and resurrection, salvation is offered to us. In closing, we're gonna pray for the rest of your day. But I also wanna, from time to time, I like to um, give an invitation for people who have never done what Sir Robert Anderson did. He was challenged. Uh, Pastor Hall said, I tell you as a minister that there's life in Jesus' name. Will you accept Christ or will you reject him? When I pray this morning, I'm gonna pray the sinner's prayer. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'm not gonna ask you to do anything. I want this to be between you and Jesus. Maybe you know about him. I hope everybody here and everybody watching has a personal relationship with him. But after a Bible study like this morning, can you deny that no other man in history fulfilled these things on April 6, 32 AD? And when Jesus says there's no other name under heaven where why you must be saved, the, the current politically correct trend is there's many roads to get to heaven. Or maybe you're a good person and that's why you're going to heaven. No, you're not a good person, number one. Pastor Joe made that very clear to us at the stake of study. <laughs> Anybody here think you're good? You're not. <laughs> and so if there's salvation in no other name, the, the question is simple. 
Have you made the most important decision that you'll ever, ever make in your life? And do you understand the consequences if you reject him? There really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And Jesus came to pay the price that should, we should be taking responsibility for. But if you accept him, he wipes the slate clean. But it's a matter of your exercising your free will. So as I pray this morning, if you have never received him, this is between you and him, then you, in your heart, pray this prayer, and I'll pray for the rest of us. Let's pray. Oh God, I acknowledge that I am, as you said, a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins, and I'm asking you right now, Palm Sunday 2019, to forgive me. I want to turn from my sins. And Lord, I receive you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and my Savior. I confess you, Lord, as my Savior and Lord. And from now on, I want to follow you. And I pray this, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. For the rest of us, Lord, who have prayed that prayer, some of us many years ago, some of us maybe just this year. But help us understand, Lord, that there's no in-between. We are either for you or against you. And for those of us, Lord, that you have allowed us to see another Palm Sunday 2019, we're grateful. And we have to uh, be humbled by the accuracy of your word and how you've laid it out in such a way that it's um, undeniably no way could any man have anything to do with the writing of this book. And for that we're grateful, Lord, for your word. We love it. As we just got done with Psalm 119, every verse except two, talking about the importance of this book. Lord, keep us in it. Help us not add to it or take away from it. And we thank you so much that you gave not only the Holy Spirit and your Son, but also your word. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. (laughs) Anybody here think you're good? You're not. (laughs) And so if there's salvation in no other name, the, the question is simple. Have you made the most important decision that you'll ever, ever make in your life? And do you understand the consequences if you reject them? There really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And Jesus came to pay the price that should, we should be taking responsibility for. But if you accept him, he wipes the slate clean but it's a matter of your exercising your free will. So as I pray this morning, if you have never received him, this is between you and him, then you, in your heart, pray this prayer, and I'll pray for the rest of us. Let's pray. Oh God, I acknowledge that I am, as you said, a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins, and I'm asking you right now, Palm Sunday 2019, to forgive me. I want to turn from my sins. And Lord, I receive you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and my Savior. I confess you, Lord, as my Savior and Lord. 
And from now on, I want to follow you. And I pray this, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. For the rest of us, Lord, who have prayed that prayer, some of us many years ago, some of us maybe just this year. But help us understand, Lord, that there's no in-between. We are either for you or against you. And for those of us, Lord, that you have allowed us to see another Palm Sunday 2019, we're grateful. And we have to uh, be humbled by the accuracy of your word and how you've laid it out in such a way that it's um, undeniably no way could any man have anything to do with the writing of this book. And for that, we're grateful, Lord, for your word. We love it. As we just got done with Psalm 119, every verse except two, talking about the importance of this book. Lord, keep us in it. Help us not add to it or take away from it. And we thank you so much that you gave not only the Holy Spirit and your Son, but also your word. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.